Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Try and have a very, very strong sense of humiliation and wrongdoing against it in the past and a desire to return to be number one or at least amongst the top two or three powers in the world, which it already is. And this has taken 20 years, 30 years. These are not things you can do very, very quickly, obviously. But most of the things that are happening now were already happening then. I'm very pleased to be able to speak today with uh, Edward Berman, uh, the author of 21 books, but the one that caught my attention uh, is China, the Stealth Empire. Um, and I want to speak to him as an investor, as an academic, as a social uh, entrepreneur, uh, as well as a writer um, in, in, uh, in a number of um, historical dimensions, not just in China, but in other places where he's lived, uh, out of the UK, in Italy, in, in, uh, in Iran, and so on, uh, and, and, and draw from his rich uh, depth of uh, insights, uh, historical, and then, uh, you know, current um, sociological and, and, his, um, and, and economic uh, developments taking place today. Thank you for joining us today. Um, but um, give us a sense of uh, the whole holistic uh, experience that you've had with China that resulted in this book, The Steel uh, Empire. Well, that, this book is, is quite old. It was published 12 years ago. And it was an attempt to understand, for me, what China was at that time. And so I began by looking at the very distant past, because I believe China is such a long-standing development cause that you can't just look at a few years past and understand what it is. So I wanted to see what China's position had been in the world in the past. For example, under the Emperor Qianlong at the end of the 18th century, it had accounted for around 30-31% of world GDP. It was a very powerful economic entity. And the Chinese themselves often speak of the last couple of hundred years as their period of humili humiliation in which they lost this economic power to new powers such as Britain and also the other European countries and the USA. So I wanted to understand where all this came from, what makes China so distinctive, simply to understand how the people thought and how indebted they are, often without realizing it, to ways of thinking of the past. Because this culture is so deep that even today I encounter in friends talking about coronavirus some very strange ideas which are much more medieval magic and ancient medicine than uh, modern technology can offer in China as well. So there's a kind of mindset which is partly anchored in something very ancient and partly trying to become very new. And this I found rather interesting. Well, the interesting thing about that particular book out of your 21 books, uh, China, the Steel Empire, uh, is that it looks at everything from, uh, you know, its empire days, the, you know, you talk about the Ming paradox, uh, right down to finance, brand, and sports, uh, nationalism, foreign policy today, uh, or at the time yes. that you finished this book. Mm. Um, so you obviously went through a journey, um, you know, and uh, a journey of trying to understand the essence of what um, Chinese civilization is, Chinese society is. Uh, and then you came, came to some tentative conclusions in 2008 when you completed the book. Yes. Um, Let's use that journey uh, to help guide us. So what were your initial um, conclusions about China as a civilization? Not China in the context of any current issues that it deals with, but China as a civilization in essence. Well, the, the, that it was very solid, underlying the problems that it's had over the last 100 years, problems of, of revolution, problems of the early years of the Communist Party, which were very, very difficult. And in the last 10 years before I wrote, we had begun to see something very new, but based upon a very old way of looking at things. One of the interesting things for me, actually, from that book, I have to say slightly arrogantly, is I got quite a lot of things right. For example, I was already writing about um, Gadar in Pakistan, 
an Indian Ocean port that they wanted to develop. They wanted to develop the Pakistan railway system. They were already thinking about controlling the South China Sea much better. So I think the main difference in the last 12 years is what was called by everybody, including the then president, Hu Jintao, a peaceful rise of China has now become a little bit more belligerent. It's become warlike rather than peaceful. Things have changed in perspective in that sense. But basically the lines are still the same. China wants to grow. China have a very, very strong sense of humiliation and wrongdoing against it in the past and a desire to return to be number one or at least amongst the top two or three powers in the world, which it already is. And this has taken 20 years, 30 years. These are not things you can do very, very quickly, obviously. But most of the things that are happening now were already happening then. I'll give you one very small example. One of my favorite little books is a book about modernization of China by Sun Yat-sen, who understood the importance of a railway link between China and Europe, even in the 1920s. So they've always been looking in this direction. The idea of, of Gadar was to avoid the problems of Taiwan and of the South China Sea, and indeed to be able to export to the West without going through the most dangerous, difficult, easily controllable place on, on the globe in terms of sea, which is Singapore and the Malacca Strait. And to avoid that completely, that would have been very easy to block. And so they've always had this idea of becoming obviously much more important of recovering the power, economic strength and military power, which they once had. Now it's become, it's entering in, I think, a new phase. You must have seen hundreds of graphs that economists show of China rising and the US slowing down. So around, they said 2028 or 2030, China would overcome the USA as the world's uh, most important market and, and in terms of GDP. Now we have this disease which has leveled more or less everything and has changed very, very dramatically the way uh, people think about China. And it's also changed very dramatically the things that China now has to do to um, reach its objective, which I don't think they can do, by the way. Just on the point of the, 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 um, the, the, desire, to, the desire to expand out, uh, I, I, I don't want to use any phrase that is belligerent, but um, um, if, I, if we were to go back to, um, you know, the, the uh, Admiral Chen He, who in um, 1371, um, you know, started the whole flotilla of uh, Chinese vessels going out um, peacefully to demonstrate, you know, the suzerainty of China over um, the rest of the world. Um, it had a, it had its own characteristics at that time. It it, uh, it gave more than it took. Um, it wasn't belligerent. It wasn't going out to conquer territory. It just wanted um, that recognition of being a, a powerful um, state. Um, and in fact, um, right here in Southeast Asia, in, in Malacca, the the, uh, the uh, sultans used to give the Chinese emperor, you know, something called a gold flower every year. Um, mm -hmm. And in exchange, the Chinese emperor will send in ships of uh, goodwill. Um, yes. And also, so that, that respect thing was very important um, uh, for, the, for, for Chinese civilization as a whole, I, I think. Um, so how, how much of those themes do you think they co that continue into today? Well, those ships were, I'm not sure whether they were completely um, simple and not completely without objectives but they were basically a statement of power. And what they wanted to show to the Ming emperors was tribute. that foreign powers were supposed to be part of China in the sense of at least paying tribute as, as all of the countries in Southeast Asia did for many, many centuries. In the list of tributary countries in the 19th century, for example, uh, Britain was included. So Britain was included as part of the tributary system. When Lord McCartney, who I write about in the book, arrived in Beijing, they saw themselves, McCartney's British embassy, as going to uh, do a deal with China, to show China how powerful they were, 
to, in a certain sense, take over power, the Chinese simply saw them as bringing gifts as tribute, just as the Indians might have taken a few elephants 500 years earlier. They brought some jewels and clocks and technology, which actually the Chinese already had, um, as tribute. I think today there's still this element of tribute that everywhere in a certain logic, everywhere, as they say in China, under heaven, Tiansha, everywhere in the world belongs to them in some sense. So everybody owes them tribute. This is why I believe very strongly in the book in the sense of stealth empire, that although you can't go around the world nowadays with gunships, even ships of that size and say, you are mine, you belong to me, you can insinuate yourself, you can gradually find a place through overseas investment, through overseas students, through overseas Chinese communities all over the world. You can gradually enter into, into the world system, but from the point of view of Chinese superiority, it means entering, filtering, if you like, into the rest of the world. So I think the tribute idea, which is very ancient, I mean, the tribute idea goes back to the Han Dynasty. So now, therefore, therefore, would you make a conclusion, I mean, a conclusion, but a, a tentative uh, perception that, um, that, that Chinese expansionism is more is benign compared to, you know, uh, Western colonialism in the last, you know, like 200 years ago. <laughs> yes, certainly when I wrote the book, it was benign. I'm not so sure today. And we've seen some very strong examples of the way in which exploitation in Africa, for example, is not so much different from what we did in the 18th and 19th centuries. We European powers, not just Britain. So there are obviously some rather negative connotations as well. It's not simply um, a gentle, benign, it's, it's a, a matter of trying to get other countries to pay tribute, to recognize, to join China, for example, in the United Nations supporting, voting for, in order to give them more diplomatic coverage for their actions. This is something that's become very, very strong, more aggressive under the present president of China than it was. So take us through that transition that has taken place from the historical China to the current China. What do you think is the transition that has taken place um, in, in the last 20 years maybe uh, that has made China fundamentally different from what it was historically? Well, man, I think, first of all, being able to generate huge reserves of cash and finance, enormous foreign reserves, which gave China a lot more power to deploy um, investments, to purchase or invest in, in, in other countries. The, the belief that it was possible to equal all the major world powers, especially the USA, which has always been their victim. I mean, I'm very intrigued. The, the geographical understanding of the Chinese is really quite limited. They, 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 most of them couldn't point Italy out on a map, certainly not Sardinia, because they've always been very focused on the USA over the last half a century. You have about 200 million, to, now it must be about 300 million a year, uh, Chinese who, who go on holiday and then come back in to back to China. You know, even, even at that, uh, that percentage, it is large enough for there to be a body of knowledge, as it were. Uh, but I, I get your point. Uh, the China, Chinese mind is more preoccupied with anything American. With the USA. This is yeah. a, and the number one place for them to want to go to, vi to visit or to live is always the USA. I've never met but, a Chinese who's expressed a desire to live in Italy. To live oh, that, in Italy. Uh, okay, that's, a, that's an interesting <laughs> point that you're bringing up because uh, I think with a population of 1.5 billion, uh, there is enough um, critical mass of uh, sub-communities who are not necessarily interested in Italy. You know? so, so I do come across Chinese who, uh, who, who, uh, who rather buy a house in Spain than anything American. Uh, yes. And then there is, a, there is a whole cohort of Chinese who like Australia. Um, yes. And I, I, was, I was even surprised that uh, there is a large number of Chinese uh, who go to India to do yoga every year. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of gurus in India who are very popular in, in China. So it, mm. um, when you get a population of that size, uh, the subgroups are, are sizable. 
you know, in fact, I, I would even I would even say that they are more uh, they're more distinctive, uh, distinctive, um, and of a certain critical mass that that you can actually create um, um, you know a Chinese um, a tourism business around any one of these subcategories. Um, but I, I take your point that as a as a country, they're preoccupied with the U.S. Uh, and that they're preoccupied with this whole idea of superiority with the U.S. And um, um, and that may even be predicated um, in wrong terms because, as I was telling you before we started this conversation, um, you know that the whole preoccupation is who's going to define the next phase of um, you know technological development and so on. And China is this, China is that, but they still buy the technology from the U.S. Uh, and um, and all of the technology exporting companies in China are very, you, I mean, dependent on selling in the U.S. If if it if that export market didn't exist, uh, that whole that whole dimension would drop, and uh, the south of China would look very different. With five companies uh, weren't making money in Shenzhen. When you talk about these big companies, they're not really exporting at all. You know, they're producing. Um, it's OEM for American companies. It's not quite the same as exporting Chinese products. So a large part of what a candidate is exports are not really exports in a traditional sense. And therefore, I, even more dependent, right? Because uh, yes. they're part of that process. Sure. Um, so so take, take, keep, let's keep on this theme of that transition that has happened. You served as, um, as an advisor to the CIAN, the City Wall Heritage Foundation and so on. So you, you, you have a, a, a very strong sense of what China was historically, um, and at some point that started to change. Take us through that transition. Also because I tend to go back to some of the historical dimensions like the um, Admiral Cheng's voyages to get a sense that what, I'm, what I think we're looking at is a country that wants suzerainty but not necessarily um, dominant over the, the, the rest of the world. But you're saying something that you're saying that that has changed over time. So take us through that, yes. that phase, how that transition happened. Well, I think it happened when an awareness came to China that it was powerful enough to really challenge. And this happened probably around the time of the book. It happened uh, in the first decade of this new century when uh, production increased, when they had huge advances in. in production, technological production, when in fact the five companies you're talking about began outsourcing to China. This was a very important moment. But some of the very old cities, like Xi'an, for example, I mean, nobody knew where that was 20 years ago. No Europeans. It became famous because of the wall and because obviously the terracotta warriors, about whom I've also written a book, by the way. And they, that gave them tourist, tourist money in order to start thinking about other ways of developing the city. But again, you know, this, the way of doing that has been a little bit unusual. They haven't actually developed anything techno technological in Xi'an. They have good universities, they have good young people, they have a good labor market, but it's a bit like uh, what the American companies have done in Shenzhen. One of the biggest employers in Xi'an at the moment is Samsung, who built a huge factory for manufacturing. And this is another example of, of what I'm not quite sure if I can call it exporting or not, but it's investing or getting foreign investors to move production to China, who then re-export their products, their assembled products. And that they began to understand with a huge amount of money available, a huge amount of land also available for these things, with uh, country leaders and also provincial governors understanding that this was a way they could develop the country very, very rapidly. Right. Um, also in the, in the automobile industry, for example, which almost didn't exist at the beginning of this century. There's been huge advances, again, in Xi'an, BYD, which has actually been invested in by Warren Buffett about 10 years ago and now produces also electric cars, is another very good example. But that's been using US technology. It's been now using, uh, using Chinese-made batteries, but the technological background is, is not Chinese. But because of the huge number of domestic customers and the possibility of producing cheaply, these industries have taken off. So a city which was 
pretty poor 40 years ago, is now one of the leading cities in China. I'm talking about Xi'an because of all this new investment, because of new technology, because of new businesses. Very recently, in terms of 2,000 years of China. And uh, so what you're saying is the, the, the foreign capital, the foreign technologies um, provide the anchor from which um, different parts of the country has been, uh, have been um, you know, uh, sprouting. The interesting thing about China is that since 1900, um, it's probably experimented with a number of different political systems. Um, you know, from emperor to, you know, to the republic, um, to some form of democracy, and then chaos, and so on. And then, and even the, the, the communist regime um, uh, had different um, iterations over time. You know, there was Mao, and then, and then there was Deng Xiaoping, and then, and then there's a collective sort of thing, and then now there's something else. So, um, you know, if, if, if you... If you were to compare China and the U.S. in the last 100 years, um, you might even say that China has, uh, um, has uh, you know, tried different systems in order to find the one that is most suited. And for all you know, we, we are actually um, experiencing the most um, credible, you know, sustainable uh, political and social model uh, for China right now and, and the U.S., it's dysfunctional because um, it's sort of stick, stuck to that two-party system in that 100 years. Yeah. You know, um, do you see that as a transition? And how how would you how would you categorize the uh, political and social transitions that have taken place in China? I would call it geological, in the sense that it's like a huge mass, very gently forming. You cannot, after 2,000 years of a fairly continuous government form with continuous laws, the, the civil codes, for example, the, the politics, the economics, the way of life. You cannot suddenly change that in a few years into something else. So it's obvious that from the end of the Republic to the end of the Qing Dynasty, it's taken a long, long while to find the right form. You may well be right that this is the ideal form. I'm not convinced of that. But it's obviously for such a huge mass of people who were in huge poverty, huge difficulty a hundred years ago, it's a very remarkable change, but it's taken a long, long time to find the right format. This is rather obvious. So my, my feeling is that it hasn't finished. My feeling right now is that even the process has been dramatically hit by the present problem of coronavirus that there will be implications out of that over the next five to 10 years, which nobody knows. I, I can't pretend to know what will happen. Um, as you said before, talking privately, economists, for example, have no idea at all what's going on. Actually, the, the, the task of economists is, is to explain the past rather than to predict the future. You know, right. They need data to be able to work something out. Now, when we're talking of five or 10 years ahead, um, it's very, very hard. Even I, for example, I wrote a book about internet in 2003, which was very successful in, in the USA, in England, called Shift. It was about the change of paradigm, paradigm shift in, in communications and everything. And up to a certain point, I think it's very good. The end, I got it all wrong for one very simple reason, that I had no idea, and I was considered fairly expert, but nobody could imagine social media Nobody could imagine the kind of things that extra bandwidth and speed would make possible with social media and much more immediate connections. It was totally impossible. And so, the, in other words, the next 15 or 20 years was unimaginable, literally. And I think that's what we've got in China today, that it's unimaginable. It's very, very hard. What do you as a historian and someone, and also as an investor before, what do you put your fingers on and what you're looking out for to tell you what the future is going to look like? Um, you know, what do you think are the indicators we need to track uh, in order to construct how this is going? How, how in, this the is present, going in, in the present case, you mean. The great thing about coronavirus is it forces the truth out. And so it's made us rethink a lot of things that we have assumed to be rigid, like the eventual um, overtaking of the US economy. 
We have learned, for example, from the Japanese originally, this concept of just-in-time in manufacturing, which is now completely unimaginable in the future. Just-in-time in the old sense. I remember going to a mobile phone factory in Tianjin a long, long time ago, where this was manufacturing for at least a dozen different companies. Motorola was one of the customers then, I remember where parts came in from Singapore, from Japan, from Korea, chips and bits and pieces in the morning, in the morning, and in the afternoon they were shipped out as phones to San Francisco. And that kind of just-in-time, with no, no warehousing, no storage, just producing very, very smoothly and rapidly, is now just about impossible. And now it is impossible, right now, and I don't think it will ever come back as it was, because the, there will be huge changes in the way logistics work. There will be huge changes in outsourcing, huge changes in how much companies are prepared to put in a place which they can't control. And there are new technological advances, which are very exciting for me, and which I think will have a dramatic influence in the next five to ten years, not immediately. i give you one example of this, is 3D printing. Now, 3D printing up to now has been mainly things of architects building little plastic buildings to show off their, their new designs or for real estate agents. Now we have new companies, very, very highly sophisticated companies in the USA, a couple of them connected with professors from MIT, who can do 3D printing using molten metal. So the just-in-time means in the corner of the office and does not require transport, does not require the payment of taxes, does not require custom services, and all the other complications of sending things backwards and forwards to a place which in any case is becoming a bit expensive at the moment in terms of manufacturing. As you know, a lot of manufacturing is already moving into cheaper countries. I think this will break totally new logistics and, and um, artificial intelligence together with 3D printing will break completely the traditional business model of manufacturing. Do you think that the Chinese in their current configuration are capable of originality? I'm not sure, probably not. Because, and partly because, for example, the one weakest thing about all of the Chinese technology, which you have mentioned indirectly talking about companies in Shenzhen, is that they cannot produce sophisticated chips, microchips, that all, they all have to be imported. And this means that it's difficult to be original. And so to be able to change, to, to have total originality, you've been able to, uh, you, you will need to use new chips, new inner workings, if you like, to do something totally original. My answer is probably no. One thing the Chinese have always had is the, is the advantage of size, of economic power, to be able to put in production or develop ideas, which somebody else um, has, has, has had. Of course, there are original ideas in China. I've seen quite a lot. I used to visit maybe 15 or 20 companies um, a month at one time, trying to find out new technologies, new ideas that we wanted to bring into Europe and maybe go to the stock market. And what did you see? Not much. It, 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 there were all sorts of problems. There was nothing that was really totally superior. I'm, to, I'm talking about medium to small, uh, small to medium enterprise. I'm not talking about very large companies. Obviously, they can, they can, um, they can do much more original activities. One, but it's very hard to think of something in which they're way ahead. Well, you, you've, you've written 21 books, so you've, and you've lived in Iran, you've lived in, the, in, in Italy and so on. What is uh, ingredient of originality? Uh, and what have you seen in terms of originality uh, in different civilizations that you have become accustomed to? And, um, and, and how much of that is expressed in China? Let's, let's um, drill down a little bit on that. In the past, in, in Italy, some of the most imaginative, inventive things came, for example, in construction, the invention of something like concrete, cement. Um, already 2,000 years ago. That was something that had never been done before. And that was an ancient, very interesting idea. In culture, the use of 
uh, new ways of making color, which came also in, in, in plants and insects brought from India when, when the world started to open up in the 15th and 16th century. So the, the, the possibility of having new colors dramatically changed for transformed art, which is why you see colors in paintings by Titian, by uh, painters like, like Raphael, for example, which didn't exist before. That is absolute originality in using things that exist to make something new. I don't believe in things coming out of nothing. I believe in, in, in the mixture of things. I think looking back at Chinese history, the most original period actually was the Tang Dynasty that you mentioned before, because all societies grow and develop new ideas. All cultures expand when you have inter interaction, when you have new things coming in and out. The most obvious example, even in China, is with food. Now, if you don't have interaction of food products, you yeah. never have any decent food culture. You imagine what the people in China ate before around 1600, when they had no peppers, no tomatoes, no potatoes. A lot of things which simply did not exist. Therefore, what we think of today as a wonderful Chinese food, especially in some of the outlying regions like Sichuan, for example, incredibly influenced because there was exchange, there were new products coming. The same is true in India, and the same is true in, in Italy as well. This is North Africa, it's Arabic things, it's, it's Byzantine things. It's yeah. The tomato from South America, and the potato. And so this, this is a very elementary example of how culture is not born from nothing. One of the reasons I believe China got a little bit stuck was in the, not complete closure, but partial closure or negation of the outside world for at least two or three hundred years. Because internally, by yourselves, you just don't change anything. Original ideas don't come from anything. Seeing something new which could be done in a better way or a different way. I'm afraid sometimes I'm a little bit critical when, when my Chinese friends say, ah, but we have some of the most important inventions of history. My answer to them is, well, what are the great new inventions of the last 1,000 years? And that's a bit tricky because it's true. Maybe they invented compasses and things like that, gunpowder, but certainly not recently. This is... This is not because they are not capable of invention or originality, just because nobody can create original things out of nothing. You need exchange ideas. In fact, yeah. some of the most interesting ideas have come recently when Chinese intelligence has been applied to things they've seen in Europe or America and made better. So some social media things are better in China because they've taken something that was basically good and made something superior. That's what they're very good at. It's incremental, incremental improvement rather than absolute invention. In fact, uh, one of the sayings in, in China is that uh, the U.S. Outsource, outsources uh, uh, production to China and, and China outsources uh, R&D to the U.S. military. Uh, mm. you know, in fact, uh, if, you, if you were to think about a number of the key defining characters of our, our period right now, it's, uh, a lot of that comes from, from U.S. military. The internet comes from the U.S. military. The drones come from the U.S. military. Um, you know, so uh, it's almost like you need to be belligerent to, to be inventive today and, uh, and then have the kind of budgets uh, that no one enterprise has. Um, the, let's go back to the, the, the social configuration. As I said, um, you know, China's probably tested different types of political systems and, and social systems uh, since the early 1900s. Um, and it seemed to have resonated at a point. Um, and then it's still morphing. It's, it's, uh, it's still changing today. Um, yeah. Ten years ago, I think uh, there was a TED Talk session where a Chinese person was saying that, um, you know, look at us, uh, we, are, we are a fully meritocratic country, we, you know, you need to be governor of two provinces before you become, you know, a candidate for presidency and so on. And therefore, the, the skill sets are very high. Um, and, and China had actually sort of morphed uh, the British idea of civil service 
the administration and the political process uh, into one. And, um, uh, and, and actually today, in a number of countries, when I have this conversation in Africa, for example, uh, they, they don't see, they don't remember the, the, the time when uh, these were two different things, you know, that the, there's a stability in the administration and then the, the representation part is what, um, you know, just keeps playing out. Um, and so this, the Chinese were very proud of, um, of the fact that um, administrative competence was a criteria, uh, and it still is. Um, and you pointed out in your book that, you know, the, the engineering talent in, in the Chinese administration is, um, you know, is the more dominant, um, you know, influencer, which is good because um, a lot of uh, even social issues are engineering in nature in that way. Where do you think is it now? How is it morphing? What will it turn into? One thing I always cite, I can't remember the exact number now, is that the largest company with most employees in China is actually China Railways. And they're incredibly efficient, as they are in India indeed, in managing an incredibly complex um, railway system. This is one of the great achievements. Uh, going back to the other point about different systems, what you said is true, but it's also true that in each of these dif different systems, the first Republican president, Yuan Shikai, Sun Yat-sen, and then Mao himself, from when he became leader in Yan'an in the mid-30s, they have always been very strong, traditional, um, imperial-like figures. So, although they pretended there was republicanism, they pretended there was a bit of socialism, actually it was always one very strong man who carried it through. And, and one of the things I like most, I must say, about the government at the time I wrote the book, was that that system seemed to be um, diminishing. That there was no longer, in, in the Hu Jintao government, there was no single man who controlled everything. It was a consensual um, work, a consensual um, system. At the same time, however, um, that created all sorts of problems. So, you know, a lot of people believe that you need to have somebody very strong. I agree totally with this thing of the Chinese administration system, um, although that seems to be changing because the present president plucks a man he needs and puts him where he needs to be rather than following the traditional procedures. I ha I've heard rumors of a lot of resentment against this, that the old system. You think, for example, that in the past, when five years before the termination of a presidency, the people who would be the next president and vice president were moved in to the Politburo to prepare them after having been the governor of one or two provinces. So they were gradually building up. What do you think those people think now who've been missed out totally? You know, I mean, there must be some bad feeling resentment because the system is a little bit broken, this excellent system. Um, and it is excellent. I would like to give an interview to the people who were hoping to have moved in the next generation who had moved in now to the Politburo and see what they think. Because they too, it's not just three, four, five men or women, it's three or five women and hundreds of their followers and people around them, their own people maneuvering into position. It's a whole generation of leaders which ought, according to the normal process, Protest. to have begun now for the next 10 years. And they're out. So yep. this system um, is a little bit broken by somebody who plucks who he needs to send to Hong Kong or to send to somewhere where there's an emergency without too much consideration. So that, people, that, people who he trusts. I cannot understand why one man opens so many, so many war fronts simultaneously um, without realizing that it's damaging him. But actually, it's the other way around. He has to absorb the, both the good and the bad. So that's, exactly. that's what he's ended up with. Yeah. And that, that's a big problem. And, and sometimes making a lot of fuss about nothing. Sometimes, you know, also not treating other countries or adversaries in, a, in an equal way of threatening here, threatening there, retreating here, retreating there, to the extent that a lot of people inside and outside China really don't know what he's thinking. His greatest initiative, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which was launched, I think, to, uh, in 2013, is, is floundering. It's not quite as successful as he thought it was. And now he's damaging it himself by, by introducing all sorts of rules and by 
Another great thing, for example, I remember visiting some Muslim areas in, in, the, in the west of China, where <coughs> they were saying they couldn't understand how the, 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 the Chinese had not realized when they're criticizing Muslims all the time, that all the countries along the Belt and Silk Road from China until Turkey are all Muslim. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, not that easy to, uh, to keep them happy if you're also acting against them or talking about them in, in a negative way. It's a kind of strange combination of, of knowingness and naivety. Well, in some ways, the West, um, you know, nurtured it because uh, if this is one country that uh, has had its cake and eat, is eating it, right? So, I mean, it signed the WTO agreement and then uh, basically chose who it wanted to give access to and did it. So, you know, and then closed everybody out and, and yet benefited yes. from that. It, it signed an agreement with the IMF and uh, wanted to externalize the renminbi without uh, liberalizing the current account. Uh, and it still hasn't. Yes. Uh, no other country has been given this privilege. Uh, and even right mm. now, uh, the pandemic is called COVID-19. You know, not Zika, not, uh, um, you know, not... Ebola, you know, suddenly um, every other pandemic has got a place name and, 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 um, and it's wrong to call it uh, Wuhan flu. Um, you know, so they basically got what they wanted, right? So, um, yes. you know, and I'm, and I'm saying this uh, with, you know, a lot of respect and, 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 um, and love for China. I'm not saying this, um, you know, uh, with a desire to, to be little, um, you know, a very important country and a very rich country and a very a country which has got a lot to contribute to the rest of the world, mm -hmm. um, you know. And so the reason for this conversation is really to draw from history, you know, the substance of this mm -hmm. country and and um, you know one of the good things that we need to see come out of it that that uh, you know that can make it a player in in, a, in the global sphere, um, you know. So. Uh, I mean, they, if they had allowed Hong Kong to 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 exist, they would have been able to experiment with a number of different uh, political models outside, just you know, outside the, the core, um, and implement them back in if it worked. And right now, even that's been destroyed. So, um, you know, the the essence in your studies, when was the best period in China? Um, you know, when do you think that, that, that Chinese civilization was at its zenith, at its most contributory terms, um, you know, usefulness to the world and, and benefiting from the world and so on? The usefulness to the world is another, is another thing. Well, for me, the two favorite times are rather obviously the very beginning of Tang Dynasty, by which I mean the first two emperors, Gaozu and Taizong, which means from around 600 to 650. See, Taizong died in 1649, but it's a half century in which nearly everything that became wonderful about China was developed. Uh, the, a new political system, a new administrative system of prefectures, a new civil code, which continued to exist into the 19th century, uh, a new um, way of looking at the world and openness to the world, above all to trade, to India, to, to, to Buddhism, even to Christianity, which is quite an extraordinary thing, that the famous Nestorians who arrived in, in, in Xi'an in 635 weren't killed or put into prison or sent back. You know, the emperor wanted to understand them. He wanted to know where they came from, what it was like, what, did, what, what sort of military organization did they have in, in India? Yeah, and I'm sure he would have found it very, very fascinating to see some, something, for example, how military campaigns and measurements were totally different in India. And this is the sort of thing I can imagine him sitting down and listening to his monks and his ambassadors trying to understand the world in, 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 in an important way. And therefore allowing new ideas, the dances, the music, the musical instruments, the horses, and also being interested in Korea, in what is now North Korea and part of, and part of China, being interested in India in general. Yeah, this was a moment of great opening, a man who was, I think, very energetic, very intelligent. This set up what became for 300 years what every Chinese would consider the most important part of Chinese history. 
But I look back at the first 50 years and think he was an extraordinary man. And that was a moment of extraordinary explosion, precisely because he came in a little bit from the outside. His family were part of the nomadic. He was very intelligent and interested in what was happening in the rest of the world. And um, on the whole, I think that's probably my favorite little period. Another one for sim similar reasons, uh, he, Taizong was very, very close to Central Asia and India. A little bit later, the, the first Qing emperors in the 18th and early 19th, sorry, 17th and early 18th century were very, very closely connected with the Jesuits and with Italy. And you have another moment of opening, which I find very interesting. And so there too, when you have opening, you have, you have a man who came from Italy to teach them about geometry. You have um, somebody, an emperor, who is the first emperor who ever had precise maps of the country. Being able to, 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 to have all of this by exchange, by opening, by discussing, it doesn't mean weakening yourself. You don't become stronger when you isolate. You become stronger when you mix and, and get in new ideas. And then, then, then you have this wonderful flowering in the 18th century when China was the richest country in the world under the Emperor Qianlong, who had a very long reign, 60 or 70 years. He expanded China immensely. That was when Xinjiang became part of China and when Yunnan became part of China. The country was bigger afterwards. And he had trade, huge trade, for example, with, with, uh, with the Spanish, and therefore with South America. The, the Mexican silver dollar became the standard Chinese currency at that time under him, and was until the beginning of the, um, the beginning of the 19th century. So this was having a currency which was real. It wasn't just a coin that could be remade. It was its real weight of silver. So it had real value. And so when China is open and strong, has a strong leader, it can be a wonderful country. Um, and it has been more recently as well. Something similar began, began to happen with the reforms of 1978 and the opening up again. You know, when China opens up, the wealth today, the prosperity of the beginning of, the, of, of this century, and even the power that the present today has, all goes back economically to 1978, to the reforms of Deng Xiaoping, who also, as you know very well, was behind a lot of the, the, the development of Shenzhen. So you, you're actually describing moments in Chinese history where you could see flourishing of um, uh, society, community, um, and technology. In fact, there were also moments like during the, the Warring States period and um, you know, the, the Three Kingdoms period where just before the Song Dynasty or just during the Song Dynasty when China was essentially three different uh, warring uh, parties, you had you had you know gunpowder and, and stuff like that. So yeah. you, it, it's uh, it, um, just like the U.S. generates so much of its creativity because of its war machine. Um, you know, war is as much a, uh, a generator of creativity. You know, mm -hmm. but um, um, you're also describing that uh, these periods of, um, of erudite um, development then slowly decline, right? And, and that, those declines can be 200 years, can be 70 years. You know, it just goes through a, that kind of a phase. Um, yes. the, the whole idea of Western civilization today is how to avoid such declines, you know, within short periods by institutionalizing as much as possible. Um, how do you think China is going to work this through? Because um, the things that it could have institutionalized, uh, like the rule of law, um, international relations and so on, um, they, they're still subject to a lot of, um, you know, personalities and, and so on. So uh, how, how do you think it's working out? Like, like that whole uh, boom, boom to bust sort of a, a, a period. Um, where are we now? You know, and what, what do you, what, 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 <laughs> what do you spend your time thinking? Because uh, from 2008, when you wrote that, when you wrote your book, uh, The Steel Empire, it's the Empire you, you were quite positive when you were ending that book, by the way, you know, yes. and, and now, now you've, uh, your, your thoughts have developed further. So I'm still not negative. I'm just uncertain. 
I'm worried because I think things are not being done as well as they could be. But to go back to your real question, I don't think there has never been up to now, as far as I know, in the world, a civilization which has not declined. <laughs> there is always a moment at which decline happens. And it's, happened, it's happening right now even to my own ex-colonial power, <laughs> which I was born in. There's a very strong decline. And everywhere has declined. So I, I'm not at all surprised that, that China declined very powerfully in the 19th century. After Qianlong, it just had a series of very weak rulers who were not really as good as he was, not as open as he was. And of course, the rise of imperial powers, which, uh, which was the start of the problems of Hong Kong <laughs> in 1840. So yeah, I think that's almost inevitable. I believe right now that China is going to have a period of decline. And I don't, I don't mean next week or next year, I mean in the next five to 10 years, we will see that it has not become as important, as all-powerful as it believed it would be just a year ago. This is the change which has been forced by coronavirus, not by the disease itself, just by the consequences. Give me a few elements of coronavirus that you think forces this. Well, for example, it's, it's making all Western companies, including the ones you've named and I've named, think twice about what they're doing in China. And they're trying, they're looking at ways of, of um, moving production, of doing production in a different way. One of the most stunning things for us in Europe was the fact that we didn't even have any, any production at all of face masks and other protective equipment. It was all made in China. This is a disaster because that's something which you cannot leave totally to any other country. And so I let's think just now, work up to that as an idea. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But then we also realize lots of other things. You know, that you have to, as we say in English, you have to spread your bets. You, know, you can't move your manufacturing out of China because some can't be moved, but some can be moved. Some can be cancelled. And we need to find a new balance. We need to find a new balance in, in business, in business processes between various places in the world. There's no reason at all. Uh, so Shenzhen is a very particular case because there's so many component factories and, and, and uh, suppliers for the major companies located in what is really a very spread out city, but it's very small compared with the whole of China. That is a problem that other countries don't have. On the other hand, we have to radically rethink our concept of logistics, because just in time was based on logistics. The logistics of China are awful as we've just seen. And that's another thing that I think will change dramatically in, in, in the future. I give you an, an, I read something in the Washington Post a few weeks ago that I loved when a journalist said, why do we need a government when we have Amazon? But that, that's because, a peculiarly uh, capitalistic <laughs> problem at, at the moment. When yes. you have, um, when you have companies, corporations, <laughs> larger than the top ten, larger than all, all the other countries except the top ten. There's a sense, there is a sense in this, a very important underlying sense. When we think of the face masks and all those problems, you had the British government fighting against the Italian government to buy supplies in Wuhan, ironically, which is where the most production took place. Mm -hmm. but the yeah. French government fighting against all sorts of other people. You had everybody arguing about what to do. And in, if all of these countries had come together and given a procurement contract to Amazon. I'm sure that we would have had supplies exactly where you need them, when you need them, which is what they're very good at. It's unfortunately becoming a little bit too powerful now. But um, there again, a little prediction of mine, now that he's finishing his mansion in Washington and owns the Washington Post and is twice as rich as the second richest man in America, I don't think it'd be very long before Mr. Bezos tries to become president. He's still young enough, and it'd be fairly straightforward for him, I think. But this is a, a little aside. It's not necessarily aside. Actually, that, <laughs> that tells you how accessible the U.S. presidency is, uh, yes. you know, yes. to anyone walking off the streets. Uh, with a billion, with a billion dollars in their pocket. That helps, you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it, <laughs> And how inaccessible leadership is, um, you know, uh, to in other societies. So you you actually have diametrically different um, 
you know, ecosystems uh, in conflict with each other and, and both looking at the other and, and figuring out what, what is it that we are missing? You know, China is the yes. most organized country in the world today, you know, bar yes. none. Um, you know, so, um, so is that a good thing? And, and um, you know, well, is, is there a different way to play it or, or should they even so. try? So there are other ways of doing things. I cannot give you the answer. Nobody can. Certainly no economist can. What will happen uh, in 10 years' time? I'm very curious to see because I think there will be dramatic changes as a result of people reassessing their relationship. Final question. Why, why still empire? Um, why still? Why? why um, the, you know, and does, that, does it still apply? Because it's, 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 uh, it's very open and obvious now. It's not stilt anymore. No, that, that's the big change that, that has come with this new president. Because before, they did not want to be openly, as you always say in your favorite word, belligerent. They didn't want to openly say, yes, we're going to take over the world. So they said, no, this is a peaceful and prosperous rise. But now they're being a bit more provocative, a bit more deliberate about it. So if, if this book were republished, which it couldn't be because half of it is ready to be thrown away or, or, or at least eliminated because it's very out of date, but the basic ideas are not, we would just have to eliminate the word stealth from the title because it's no longer stealthy. You know, there, there was a way through students at universities, through small companies, through communities of Chinese around the world, which was able to bypass traditional um, lines of supply, lines of thought, and come into, into, into our lives in the US and in, in, um, in Europe in a more stealthy way. They, they've disappeared or are changing very, very rapidly. You say I've written 21 books. I lived in China for 15 years. And I remember, I think in the preface of this book, right at the beginning, I quote a man who wrote a book about 1920 who said, after about 10 years in China, people think they begin to understand it. When they've been here 15 years, they write a book about it. And after 20 years, they realize it was all nonsense and they'll never understand anything. <laughs> because it's not an easy country. And, and we have the great disadvantage that you and nobody can give a serious, open interview to the real political leaders of the country. We Actually, you, you just drew a point there because Bertrand Russell said the same thing. Uh, yes. Almost the same thing, which is uh, that just when you thought you understood and then you see something that you don't. And that may well be the, you know, a, a symptom of a, of a society that is willing to change, uh, mm -hmm. that's willing to morph, um, that morphs mm -hmm. in essence, uh, although you don't see it morphing in institutions. Um, yes. you know, and, uh, and that is sometimes a good thing. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, the U.S. morphs technologically, it morphs um, cap in, the, in capital markets, but it doesn't morph uh, politically. So, yeah. you know, there's that, there's that dichotomy. Yes. And so then you get people like, um, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, who are in a position to make changes that governments should be making, um, you know, not just Absolutely. at their own national level, but globally, mm -hmm. and, it, and creates personalities like that. Um, so here, here you have, just like the other large uh, civilizations, um, um, China as a large civilization has its contradictions. And I think that for the rest of us, we, uh, we just need to come to terms with those contradictions, uh, but uh, hope that the essence of it uh, you know, still remains positive for everybody. Uh, in fact, your last point um, that... Uh, that you know that things may not be changing for the better in the next few years uh, is very interesting, uh, and that and that we need to look at what COVID is doing to us um, to get a sense of you know the elements where China is not uh, responding well because on the face of it it seems to be leading the rest of the world it, it knew exactly what to do um, you know when when the pandemic hit uh, it was the best beneficiary of the cdc's uh, principles when the cdc itself was actually falling apart that was very interesting um, you know and uh, so it was a good student of you know of all the methodologies mm -hmm. that were required to survive yes. the, uh, to survive the pandemic and then 
And then there were, uh, if you look at some of the conversations taking place in the U.S. Um, in 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 the, in the need to give up personal liberties, uh, community, um, and and how that how even the fact that the police is now being called into question because the way it's configured is not you know it's not suitable for society. Um, th well, that's how the U.S. changes um, you know over time um, and responds to uh, you know changes. So so. Um, a conflict situation or a or a dramatic uh, shift uh, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, what we are trying to make sense of is if uh, if it is a linear progression that that all the good things that we have seen in China in the last few years uh, are just going to continue or, or or to be built on. That I don't think will happen. They aren't going to continue as they are. I think the first clear point is that everybody needs new business models. But we don't know what they are. This is the real problem. <laughs> I think, I'm sure new business models will come in the next few years. But first we need to cure everybody. We need to stop the disease. We need to count the financial cost and understand what happened. After that, there'll be uh, people are already thinking, but it will take some time to develop these new business models. Then we need a new diplomatic model. Here, I think the recent um, talks about creating a joint um, diplomatic bloc between North America and the EU, which would be so massive, it would change the dynamic completely if we had a friendly president, for example, in the US, it would change completely the dynamic with China. But even most people don't realize, including a lot of ordinary Chinese people, that the EU is already more or less equal to China and the US in economic power, if you put all 27 countries together, it's not a small thing and it's growing. And, and we have one of the most powerful countries in the world, which is Germany, at the heart of, of, of something that can equal and will equal in the future other powers. So you need a diplomatic reassessment, a business model change. Then I think also we will see social change, which is very important. You mentioned before, all these Chinese who come to Venice and Paris and God knows where else and all over the world, which is very nice. I'm very happy for them. But we have to remember there's still a lot of bad feeling. If you recall that in China, about half the homes in China do not have running water or bathrooms with lavatories with water in the home. That's a huge number. In that sense, you know, there is a very small, as there always has been, rich belt of China. You know, the people I've seen in the country in very small villages don't go to Venice on holiday and they have no idea where it is. They don't even want to know where it is. They have much more essential problems, like giving food to their children. So there's a social dimension as well. And if there is some economic cost or loss of employment or business, this will be very, very uh, dramatic social cost. The fourth thing, which I think is is um, very important. We mentioned the US and China in the beginning. USA is a, has an incredible domestic market. Only four or five percent of, of American um, production is for export. They can survive by themselves. China can't. It's gone down from 60 to 40. I don't know what it is now, but still a very, very high percentage of Chinese GDP, GDP is export oriented. They, they've been talking for years and years and years about Chinese domestic market, but it's not growing that fast. So they cannot live alone to the same standard. I think the USA can, because it has such an important domestic market, especially if you include Canada. This is another important thing. You know, the only way in which China can really supersede and, and have something completely new would be to make a dramatic increase in the domestic market. That will be linked to very soon high debt, unemployment and other problems as a result of the disease, which will slow down even more the development of a, of a domestic market. That's why I think we can't make any useful predictions about the next year or two. Even airline companies are now saying they won't know the truth until about 2023. Hotels are pretty much the same. And if they don't know, and they only deal with a very small business, a very small part of a business. 
what a huge country like China can know, or Europe can know, about the next two or three years is absolutely impossible to imagine. The great sadness is that you've been very kind to allow me to talk for so long, for so long but I can't really answer your question because I have no idea at all what will happen in the next five to ten years. Thank you very much for doing this with me. It's more like a, a jamming session, an intellectual, um, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of a throwback in, in order to, in order to uh, you know, capture the essence. We're not here to answer questions. We are, we're here to get mm-hmm. perspectives. Uh, yes. And, and uh, I think you've given us a number of good perspectives. So we want to capture that, um, you know, as part of the interview. Thank you very much for speaking to me today. My pleasure. And I like the view. It'd be very nice to sit down there and have a drink in the evening. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.